This year, the stock market has not been fun to invest in. The S&P 500 is down nearly 6%, and the QQQ is down over 11% currently. Now, anytime this happens and you see your portfolio falling somewhere in the range of 4, 5, 6 plus percent, I'm down $15,600 over the past 30 days, it gets easy to become discouraged, to have your sentiment change for the negative. And we see that happening now in the stock market. We have lots of people that we've shown, like Jeremy Grantham, that have come out and reiterated their big bearish calls on the market, saying it's in a huge bubble and it's going to collapse by 50 plus percent. We see video after video, so much content made around macroeconomics, around the economy and the future predictions on it. We see even some popular YouTubers sell their portfolios in anticipation for a big downturn. So in this episode, instead of highlighting someone that's bearish on the market and is going to be another skeptic, I wanna highlight someone that's incredibly bullish on the market and has a pretty accurate history of how things play out. His name is Tom Lee, and I think he's one of the most bullish people on the stock market. We're gonna listen to his arguments of why February is going to be a big rally month in the market. Now, we also have some other items to get to in this episode. The Matrix co-producers are suing Warner Bros, complaining that the dual release strategy of streaming and the box office was the reason their movie didn't perform well in the box office. We're going to go over that, and I'm going to share my opinion on why this movie really didn't perform well. We also have Peloton going up 20% over the past couple of days on rumors that a big tech company will be buying this company. We'll go over which company it would make most sense to buy Peloton and which ones it wouldn't. Now, we also have news that Spotify is down 14% over the past five days over the continued fallout and controversy of hosting Joe Rogan on their platform. So we're going to go over the current state of this controversy and how I think this will end up playing out. Now, if you're new to this channel, we do things a little bit differently here than other channels. I show my real portfolio, which is $353,000, $61,000 in gains, that I've shown for the past three years straight consecutively with complete transparency. By that, I mean I show it week by week, no matter what happens, good or bad, whether or not we have huge sell-offs or huge spikes in prices, I'm gonna continue to show this portfolio week by week, every single week, all throughout 2022. So if you wanna see how a real portfolio does in today's market, you can follow along for free by subscribing to the channel. The thing that always keep in mind and keep reiterating anytime you get concerned during a market sell-off is what you actually purchased and what you actually own. We own companies. We invest in companies. That's what we're buying. Over time, if the companies grow and become more prosperous, they'll return more money to the shareholders. They do this by growing their EBITDA and growing their free cash flow. Once their EBITDA and free cash flow continually grow, they can return some of that cash to shareholders in the forms of buybacks or dividends. The reason that I called this portfolio the passive income account is because the companies that I invest in most of the time return their money in the form of dividends. Sometimes in addition, they do share buybacks, but most of them do dividends as well. I already own a lot of Costco stock. It's a company that I like. I bought a decent holding of it, and it doesn't really affect me what the holding is doing. Whether it goes up 10% or down 10% doesn't really affect me. Costco every single year has a growing amount of EBITDA. This EBITDA is what funds the dividend. This is what pays for your dividend. If they can't grow the EBITDA, they can't grow the dividend. But Costco is continually growing their EBITDA. They're continually growing their free cash flow. And as a result, their dividend grows over time and their special dividends become bigger. I can say the same thing about Starbucks. This is another company that their price is fluctuating a lot in this turbulent market. But what are they doing in the background? Their EBITDA is growing over time. Their free cash flow is growing over time. Since they're able to grow these core metrics in their company, they're able to fund an ever-increasing dividend while doing share buybacks. And I can say the same thing for every company in my portfolio. 
All of them are sound businesses growing their EBITDA, growing their free cash flow, and as a result, they can maintain and grow their dividend. And the amazing thing is, is when you view your companies through this lens as actual businesses growing EBITDA and growing free cash flow, it changes your entire perspective during a downturn. Like I mentioned, almost every company I own pays a growing dividend. Those dividends grow as they grow their free cash flow. And you can see that this results in an ever-growing dividend over time. Last month, in January of 2022, I earned for me a record-breaking $889 in dividends. This is my biggest month in dividends paid ever, and it's during a market sell-off. The companies that I own don't really care about this market sell-off. It doesn't affect the underlying businesses at all. They're producing more cash than ever, more free cash flow than ever, and they're giving that back to me in the form of dividends. You could see the same exact thing happen in 2020. In 2020, I had a massive 35% decline in my portfolio value during the pandemic sell-off. I was able to reinvest at more attractive rates during that sell-off. So that sell-off, while it's invisible when I look at my dividends paid, it actually helped accelerate my future dividend payments. All those cheap shares that I accumulated in 2020 sped up my future dividend growth. As companies come down in price, future prospective returns go up and yields go up. As companies go up in price, yields go down. Future prospective returns go down. Market sell-offs like we're seeing today are times to become very aggressive in buying bigger stakes in high-quality companies that have sold down in price. This isn't the time to become a skeptic, to become scared. This is the time to become aggressive. And like I mentioned before, these times in the market bring out a lot of bears. They come out of the woods and they share their bearish sentiment. They say how everything is doom and gloom and the world's ending and all of your stocks are going to go down 50, 60, 70% and take 20 years to recover. That's the type of thing that you hear whenever the market goes down a little. Here's a different perspective I want to share from someone that's a longtime bull. This is Tom Lee, and so far he's been incredibly accurate with his predictions. I, I mean, first of all, I, I heard all the comments uh, all the other guests made, and, and I agree this is a pretty treacherous period for markets. But I'm still going to lean into this weakness. Uh, and the reason we think it makes sense to is, one, I think the job support is, is validating that the underlying economy still remains pretty strong. The first thing that he gives is that the underlying economy is strong and evident of that is the new jobs report. The January jobs report was incredible. It surged by 467,000 jobs in one month. This is way higher than the economists were expecting. And in addition to January, there was also revisions both in November and December that showed that they actually underestimated the amount of jobs gained during those months. They underestimated it, by 700,000 jobs. So this wasn't only good news for the economy in January, this was good news for the economy in the past three months. Almost a million new jobs added in just the past three months. So the first thing that he mentioned is the jobs report, but then he continues on. With the move in rates, uh, and while that's alarming, we still have negative real interest rates. And then we know investors have essentially panicked um, because they raised a lot of cash uh, in the first eight weeks of this year. And on top of that, sentiment uh, has collapsed. And I think, you know, a, a seismic hit like Facebook even added to that misery. So uh, the cues I'm sort of looking at and the reason we're staying bullish is, you know, the VIX term structure uh, is actually normalizing, which means we're it's a risk on signal. And I'm, I'm kind of encouraged by the rally in oil uh, because that is a sign of underlying health of the economy. And I think on a risk on, uh, one of the cues that we should be focusing on is the fact that Bitcoin's back above 40,000. So we're still going to tilt towards February is going to end up being a rally month. But clearly the last couple of days have been, you know, horrifying. 
Tom brings up that the last few days have been horrible with companies like Facebook. Investor sentiment has really turned negative. A lot of retail investors raised a lot of cash, meaning that they have money on the sidelines. And a lot of that money is going to find its way eventually back into the market. Tom also brings up the rally in oil, price increase of Bitcoin, meaning that investors are becoming more risk on. And overall, he thinks that February is going to be a rally month for the market. So that's his opinion on things. And this is kind of the same thing that I've seen all throughout investing for the past six years. I see investors slice and dice economic data to form whatever conclusions they see fit. In many cases, it reminds me of the glass half empty, glass half full. Some people are naturally more optimistic. Some people have more of a pessimistic bent. The optimists most of the time are painted as being naive, as being ignorant. They don't really know the underlying challenges going on. And the pessimists are simply more educated, more realistic. They're not naive like all these optimists. And I don't think that's really accurate. Over a long enough timeline, the optimists have won over and over and over again. The pessimists may feel validated during temporary sell-offs, But eventually the market recovers, capitalism goes on, and stocks go higher. So at the end of the day, the reason that I don't worry about a temporary sell-off is because I know the companies that I'm invested in. I know they're growing their free cash flows, their EBITDAs. They have long runways of growth. They're extremely wide moat businesses that are unlikely to be disrupted. And I know that 10 years from now, they're going to be much bigger, more prosperous companies than they are today. So like I always have been, I'm staying fully invested. Now, moving on, we got to jump into some news. We have the Matrix co-producers suing Warner Media over the dual release strategy of the Matrix Resurrections on HBO Max and in the box office. And here's the reason they're suing. They say the Matrix Resurrections performed disproportionately at the box office, garnering only a fraction of the revenue generated by its predecessors. So they're first saying that it didn't perform as well as the previous videos. They say other films released during the pandemic performed well at the box office, including Spider-Man No Way Home, which unlike The Matrix Resurrections, wasn't released on a streaming platform when it came out in theaters, the lawsuit said. So just to get this straight, the co-producers of this movie are alleging the reason it didn't perform well in the box office is because it was released on streaming. I have another theory of why this movie didn't perform well. The first thing that I'd point out is this wasn't a good movie, and it wasn't anywhere close to as good as the previous installments. It had a 5.7 out of 10 rating on IMDb. That's really bad, and this comes from Matrix fans. This was a complete letdown. The original Matrix had an 8.7 rating on IMDb. That's much higher. So the first thing that I'd say is the reason this movie didn't perform as well as the previous ones is it wasn't as good as the previous ones. The movie was a lot of talking, not as much action. They did weird choices like replaced Lawrence Fishburne with a Lawrence Fishburne lookalike, almost like nobody was going to notice. It was just odd. The top reviews of the movie are people saying that The Matrix should have stayed a trilogy. And after watching this last one, I agree with this review. The second thing that they bring up is this movie didn't perform as well as Spider-Man No Way Home which didn't have the dual release. Well, again, a difference between Spider-Man No Way Home and The Matrix Resurrections is Spider-Man No Way Home was a good movie that got good reviews. It was well-received by the public. Plus, Spider-Man is in that Marvel universe. Those movies tend to do really well in the box office. Comparing your movie to a Marvel-released movie in the box office is a bit of a stretch there. Another piece of evidence that we can look at that streaming can't be the sole reason this movie did poorly is Dune. Dune was a movie that was released both on HBO Max and in the box office, and it grossed over $300 million in the first 11 days. This was breaking records for WarnerMedia, and this was also released on HBO Max for free opening day. The Matrix Resurrections, by contrast, earned less than half that much, and in my opinion, this was well-deserved. 
I think Dune was a far better movie to see than Matrix Resurrections. So I don't think their complaints here are very accurate. I think they're looking for a way to extract more money out of Warner Media and using streaming as an easy go-to excuse for their poorly reviewed and underperforming movie. The last thing that I'd mention is the trends overall for the box office are not confidence building. The box office overall has been on a decline for the past five years. Since 2017, it's been on a steady decline. And I think with so many streaming options, people are going to be much more selective of what they see in the box office. You're really going to have to make a movie worth it for people to go out and pay that extra price. Now, moving on in other news, we have Peloton stock up 19% today. This is a nice bounce for Peloton holders if you're bag holding the stock. You're hoping right now that a big tech company will buy this company. Because over the past year, This has not been a fun stock to hold. It's down 80%, showing that a lot of these companies that raced up to valuations of $50, $60 billion and high price to sales need to really execute perfectly to maintain those valuations. Peloton has been riddled with problems with supply and then problems with demand and then many marketing issues, and the stock has crumbled 80% as a result. Now Peloton shareholders have a little bit of renewed hope that a big company is going to pay a high premium to buy this company. There's not really anything solid in this report. It's basically just rumors and speculation. They say thus far, reports have named Amazon and Nike as potential suitors. One analyst thinks that Apple is, quote, aggressively involved too. But the talks are preliminary, and Peloton has yet to kick off a formal sales process, a person familiar with the matter told CNBC. So again, this is all rumors, all speculation. In my opinion, I think the companies that make most sense to buy Peloton are first Nike and then Amazon. I don't think it makes much sense for Apple to buy them. There's a couple reasons why Apple could buy Peloton. One of them is to get rid of potential competition. So if Apple is concerned that Peloton is going to compete with Apple Fitness, They could just buy the company and then silently kind of just let it roll and do its thing and never grow into a big competitor. That could be a tactic that Apple could do. They could buy the company just to rid of potential future competition. I don't think that Apple needs the company as part of its ecosystem, so I think Apple could potentially buy the company, but I think that'd be more of a play to rid out future competition. I think that it makes the most sense for Nike. Nike has a brand image of athletics, high quality products, and Peloton does as well. And this would be an easy way for Nike to compete with Lululemon. And then of course, the other alternative is Amazon. I think that they're also very likely to buy Peloton amongst big tech. Of course, Amazon could afford buying them very easily, wouldn't affect their fundamentals, and they could easily tie it into their Amazon ecosystem with Amazon Prime, offering the memberships to Peloton at a reduced price if you're a Prime member. And that'd be one more anchor to lower the churn of Amazon Prime and offer more value to consumers. So out of these three options, I think that Amazon and Nike are the most likely. I would be surprised if Apple ends up buying them. Now moving on, we have some controversy here. This is regarding Spotify and Joe Rogan. Daniel Ek, the CEO of Spotify, has now apologized to employees of Spotify for what Joe Rogan said on previous podcast episodes. But having said that, he still doesn't believe that silencing him is the solution. Now, I realize that this topic is one that can easily turn political. Everyone in the world has an opinion on Joe Rogan. Some people hate him, some people love him. And of course, that's fine for everyone to have an opinion on Joe Rogan. But this is an interesting predicament that Spotify finds himself in because Joe Rogan was a big investment for their company. In the report, they say that Spotify chief executive officer apologized to employees for the way that Joe Rogan's use of racial slurs in previous podcast episodes has impacted them. These were dug up clips of videos almost 12 years ago 
where he used uh, racial slurs. He used words he shouldn't be using. And the CEO is apologizing to the employees. He says this quote leaves many of you feeling drained, frustrated, and unheard. He said in the letter shared with the Wall Street Journal by a company spokesman that he has no plans to remove the star podcaster from the streaming platform and committed to spending $100 million on music and audio content from what he called historically marginalized groups. So his spending $100 million on previously marginalized groups is his way of throwing a bone to the people that are affected by this and offended by it, trying to do some things to make them less upset with the situation. He goes on to say, not only are some of Joe Rogan's comments incredibly hurtful, I want to make clear that they do not represent the values of the company. So he apologizes for the comments, but he also doubles down on not canceling Joe Rogan. He says, while I strongly condemn what Joe has said, and I agree with the decision to remove past episodes from our platform, I realize some will want more. And I want to make one point very clear. I do not believe that silencing Joe is the answer. So he is doubling down that he's not going to deplatform, silence, or cancel Joe Rogan. I think it's a tell of how popular Joe Rogan's podcast must be and how big of a draw it must be to Spotify for them to continue to keep this podcast on their platform. If Joe Rogan wasn't performing well and the numbers were way down and it wasn't a big attraction to Spotify, it'd be a very easy solution for them to dump him. To say, all right, he violated some rules, you dug up these old videos, we're going to go ahead and remove them from the platform. That would be it. It'd be over. The entire controversy would be over. So even though Spotify doesn't give us exact numbers on the viewership of Joe Rogan, I think it's very clear that his podcast still must be a significant draw for them to weather this storm. So as of right now, if these attempts fall flat, I don't know if we're going to see him canceled anytime soon. Seems like he might be too big of a figure, too big of a draw, and I think a lot of these attempts might ultimately be in vain. So that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a little note, I have another YouTube channel called Joseph Carlson After Hours. I've had this channel for a year, but I have a new video being released this evening. So you can subscribe to it and wait for it to be released this evening in a couple hours. And I think if you like the content on my main channel, you'll very much enjoy this next video. So that's going to be released this evening on Joseph Carlson After Hours. And there's a link in the description of this YouTube channel. That's all this time. I'll see you in the next one.